This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. I love listening to audiobooks that weave together multiple perspectives and timelines, especially when women's lives and experiences are explored. In Wayward, the new novel by Amelia Hart, we follow three extraordinary women across five centuries, and their stories are brought to life in the audiobook by a full cast of narrators, Aisha Kala, Helen Keeley, and Nell Barlow. Past guest of the podcast, Sarah Penner, author of The Lost Apothecary, calls wayward, a spellbinding story about what may transpire when the natural world collides with a legacy of witchcraft. Start listening to Wayward by Amelia Hart now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro Kapinski, and today I am so happy to have Sarah Penner back on to discuss her new novel, The London Seance Society, a spellbinding gothic whodunit introducing two enigmatic women who set out to solve a very unusual mystery. Sarah Penner is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of The Lost Apothecary, which has been translated into 40 languages worldwide and is set to be turned into a drama series by Fox. The London Seance Society is her second book. A graduate of the University of Kansas, Sarah spent 13 years in corporate finance and now writes full-time. She and her husband live in Florida. Sarah Penner, it's so nice to have you on the podcast again, and congratulations on the new novel. Thank you so much, Laura. It's uh, it's funny because in some ways it feels like no time has passed since we last <laughs> chatted, and then in some ways it feels like a lifetime has passed, but I'm so thrilled to be back on today. Yes, and it's such a treat. You know, I, I remember finishing The Lost Apothecary and having that like bereft feeling that it was over. And um, so it was so fun to get to read your next book. And it's always a treat when you kind of enjoy the next book as much as kind of the first that you sort of fell in love with of an author. So that was just a real treat. So um, for listeners who haven't gotten to pick up the London Seance Society yet, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, absolutely. So the London Seance Society takes place in high Victorian London when these um, these seances and spiritualists and the idea of contacting the dead through mediums, all of that was really in its heyday. And so the the story features this woman named Vaudeline, and she is an internationally esteemed spiritualist known for her ability to conjure the spirits of murder victims in order to ascertain the identity of the people who killed them. And she gets a knock on her door one day, and it's a young woman named Lena who's in her 20s. And Lena recently lost her sister to suspicious circumstances, and the police didn't give it much attention. And Lena doesn't believe in ghosts at all, but she's desperate to find a way to contact her little sister. So she seeks out Vaudeline, and together the two go to London and start to hunt down the truth of what happened to Lena's little sister. But they soon begin to suspect that they're not merely out to solve a crime, but perhaps entangled in one themselves. So the book has lots of cliffhangers and twists. It's subversive and feminist. Um, It's been described by some early readers as sexy and sultry. So there's a little bit of something for everybody and particularly those readers who enjoyed the mini twists in my debut, The Lost Apothecary. I think that they will really 
like this second book because the second half of the story especially is meant to kind of turn everything you thought you knew on its head and really surprise readers with some big revelations. Yes, I um, have such a vivid memory of like sitting and like gasping at different things that come up and the twists and turns. And I love that we're back in London again with this book. And I kept thinking as I was reading, I'm so curious sort of what sparked this story for you because there's so many different sides of it. Yeah. So I've always wanted to write a ghost story. I love reading ghost stories. Um, and I, I love anything haunted or spooky, but many, a, a very common trope that we see in commercial fiction when we're talking about ghost stories is we see a haunted house. And I love books that take place at haunted houses. But I also really know that for my own story ideas, I like to kind of um, approach my books from a really fresh sort of not yet done perspective. And I so I knew I wanted to not set my ghost story in a haunted house. And so I started to think outside the box. And I also love a good crime story. And I love a woman who's sort of ahead of her time in terms of her expertise and her prowess. And so I started to develop this idea of this woman who is known around the world for her skill in seance. And that was how Vaudeline, the main character in the book, came to life. And then, of course, if her primary skill is in conjuring the the spirits of murder victims, that naturally led me to my next character, Lena. Uh, because I, I knew that I needed to have a murder mystery to solve in this story. And then the third element and how that came to fruition, um, I haven't yet mentioned this, but there's another point of view character in the book. His name is Mr. Morley, and he is a member of a very exclusive gentleman's society in London. And this society claims to also perform seances and conjure the spirits of ghosts and um, so basically Mr. Morley kind of teams up with these two women, Lena and Vaudeline to solve, uh, the murder. And part of why his character and his role in the story really appealed to me is because as I was doing my research for this book, I learned that in Victorian London and, and before and after as well, um, from that era, there were countless exclusive men's only clubs and societies in London. And there is one um, that still exists today, and it's called the Ghost Club. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle was one of its uh, more well-known members. And when it was first in existence, they did not permit women um, even on site in, in the building. And I remember stumbling upon that small research tidbit. And anytime I see an instance where a woman is not permitted or included in something, immediately my wheels start turning with how can I get a woman into that situation? And that's kind of where a little bit of the subversive nature of this story is rooted. So I immediately knew I wanted Vaudeline and Lina to basically infiltrate this exclusive men's club. And that's exactly what they do in the story. I won't share how or what happens <laughs> when they do, but I loved that idea of putting them a place that they did not really belong and watching what might unfold. Oh, I loved reading about it. So something stuck, kind of struck me as you were talking about writing about women ahead of their time 
And I remember from our last conversation, kind of you talking about something that really helped kind of with the publication of The Lost Apothecary and something you found that maybe didn't work in your, um, I think, first manuscript was really having a character, um, a woman with a lot of agency and sort of like forging her own path. And kind of that, along with the woman ahead of their time, just got me wondering as you're kind of constructing these characters and starting to write the book, how do you balance wanting to have that kind of character with making sure that your character is still of the time and like making decisions and thinking a way that would be of the time as like an aspiring writer. This is something I'm thinking a lot about right now. So I'm just curious about your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think if we look at the types of thoughts and feelings that women have um, today, I really don't think that a lot of those private thoughts and feelings are all that different from how women have um, thought, you know, for many hundreds of years. The difference is that we have more freedoms and more allowed to us um, here in 2023 than women did in the 1700s or 1800s or early 1900s. And so um, what I kind of like to incorporate into my stories, because I've now written two in which women are kind of acting outside of societal norms and what they're permitted to do, is I just have them acknowledge internally, which you can show the reader some of those private thoughts, but I just have them acknowledge internally what, um, what they're doing and, and if they understand that it's kind of uncommon. So Lena in the London Seance Society, she reflects on this several times, um, you know, particularly as we are learning about these romance, these young romances that she's had, um, one with a young man, one with a young woman. And she knows in particular that the one with the young woman is completely not allowed by family or Victorian society. So she reflects on it privately, but we um, we, it makes for a very interesting experience later in the book when we see her no longer handling that privately and we see her actually do something very brave and against the grain for that time, um, related to those romantic feelings that she's having. So I think internal reflection, um, is an important thing when you have a character who's acting outside of what they know to be accepted by society. Um, and I think that adds to it, it gives them more of a three dimensional character anyways, because we all as readers love characters who are at least I love characters who are um, acting out of turn a little bit and being brave and kind of going against the grain. So I think that we really, um, and you know, I'm saying we as as women, but we really haven't changed that much over hundreds of years Um, And so I think as long as you show that internally in some of those private thoughts, your reader is going to resonate with them no matter what time period that character is living in. Oh, that's such a good answer. I love that. Well, as you were researching, um, I always find it so interesting to kind of hear about any particular sources that were really helpful or anything that really surprised you as you were researching. Um, If you could tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, so one of the most fun parts of writing this book was the research because I mentioned that I love ghosts and 
I was able to collect um, probably 10 or 12 really interesting resources about the Victorians and their obsession with the dead and the occult and seances and spiritualism. And so um, I was able to find a couple of resources in particular. Um, My favorite one is called The Victorian Book of the Dead. It's by Chris Woodward. And I'm sorry, Wood Wood Yard, uh, Y-A-R-D. And he basically went through all of these old Victorian newspapers and obscure little pamphlets that were put out by different organizations. And he found articles and real life cases that he included as excerpts in this book that talked about all of these really weird and bizarre customs and superstitions and traditions that the Victorians had. So um, one that I found interesting that I'll mention you know, we t- today in present day at various funerals or funeral vigils, we bring flowers and it's customary to put flowers all around the room and around the casket. And this is slightly morbid, but that tradition originated with the Victorians because they did not embalm bodies. And so these flowers in the room were meant to mask the odor of decay. So this is a tradition. Oh. That we, yeah, this is a tradition that we all have now. And we never really think about where it came from, but it came from the Victorians. Another interesting one that's less morbid, and I think kind of more fun is um, these, you know, today we have vehicles that or a a hearse that will transport a coffin from one location to the other. Uh, Back back in the day, in the Victorian era, they would use horses that were kind of pulling this this specially designed carriage behind them. And these horses, um, which were often huge black thoroughbreds, they were enlisted for a number of different um, tasks and errands related to um, death. So they might have been um, visited the, the family of the dead or transported people who were visiting the family of the dead and so on. So in the Victorian era, a lot of times households would place these big black wreaths or bows on their front door. And these horses, when they spotted these wreaths on the front door of a house, they would automatically come to a stop in front of the house without that horse driver needing to pull back on the reins. So I thought that was really interesting that even these animals used for these funeral processions or to transport mourners back and forth, they knew that when they saw these black fluttering ribbons or wreaths that they were at their destination and they would automatically come to a stop. So that was, um, I, I found hundreds of fascinating tidbits like that throughout my research. And in the back of the London Seance Society, something that I think a lot of book clubs and readers will enjoy is I kind of consolidated a list of different Victorian superstitions around the dead and some of their rituals and customs so that readers can have a closer look at that. That's so interesting. And it it is true that things we just take for granted, like with the flowers, I just assumed it was to cheer people up. But what an interesting tidbit about that. And um, yeah, I love that's one of the things I love about reading historical fiction, just kind of getting to just immerse yourself in um, these different times and experience what it would have been like and just so mm-hmm. much fun to read about. 
If you love hearing about the path to publishing a book on this podcast, I highly recommend you check out the Hashtag Am Writing podcast with authors KJ Delantonia, Jess Leahy, and Serena Bowen. Hashtag Am Writing is the place for fun, actionable advice for getting your work done for writers in every genre. This is my favorite writing podcast. I've been listening for years, and the hosts have really become author mentors I can easily access while I take a walk or wait for the school bus. I've gotten so many great tips on approaches to outlining, writing a first draft, revision, craft book recommendations, promotion, accountability. I can't imagine trying to achieve my goal of publishing a book without their weekly show. And their archive is a treasure trove. If there's something in your writing life you're wondering about or struggling with, they've done an episode on it. Start listening to Hashtag AmWriting today with your favorite podcast app. And if you're interested in hearing more about co-host KJ Delantonia's latest novel, In Her Boots, which is a laugh-out-loud delight and must-read, you can go back to episode 113 of A Bookish Home. Well, you know, one of the things I did want to ask about, so um, actually on the day that we're speaking, um, registration opens for the Historical Novel Society Conference, which I'm very excited I'm going to go to this year because I'm trying to write um, my own historical fiction book. But I saw that you were going to be teaching there, which I'm so excited about. I know you're talking about revision. And so it really made me wonder about kind of what the revision process was like for this book. And if, I mean, I would imagine with all the twists and turns, the different characters, that it was like maybe a very unwieldy (laughs) revision process. So I just would love to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for first of all, I'm thrilled to hear that you're um, not only working on your own historical fiction story, but that you'll be at H&S. You're exactly right. Um, I am giving a three-hour masterclass in person. It takes place in San Antonio on revision. And I'll be honest, this um, this revision the preparation for this session is going to be just hours upon hours. And um, I haven't quite yet decided how I'm going to approach it, but I am going to try and distill as much as I can for the attendees. When revising the London Seance Society, there are a couple of challenges that jump out to me that I recall. One of them being that the story opens with two murders that the reader immediately knows this book will be spent untangling these murder mysteries. But the number of characters in the story that we meet um, and kind of have a substantial role in the book is less than half a dozen. So we have two murders and we have a very small cast of characters. And you know, as the reader, I'm not going to cheat you out of a good story and just introduce the killer at the very end. Like someone here knows something. And so I had to be extremely careful um, with my word choice throughout the story with my voice and tone of my different characters because I didn't want to give away anything too quickly. And um, one, one thing that did help with this book versus my debut, The Lost Apothecary, is that The Lost Apothecary was dual timeline. So I had two entirely different stories that I had to weave together and that made for a very convoluted revision process. But this book all takes place in 1873. So I didn't need to uh, weave two timelines together, but I did need to weave um, a few different characters and their perspectives together in a way that I didn't ruin any surprises too early for 
the readers. So my, um, my editorial team, they, um, during one of the revision passes, they had me, um, essentially insert some red herrings, which we talk about all the time in the world of mystery and crime fiction to basically throw the reader off the trail. Um, they had me clean up some of the word choice and, um, the voice and the tone and the style of speaking from, for a couple of the characters. So as not to give away too much too soon. The beauty of, of revision is I think it's kind of like painting walls in a room. You can see the improvements so quickly. Um, and you know, a lot of revisions, I think, especially new writers, they think, oh my gosh, this revision pass is, I'm, I'm going to have something on every single page I need to change. But that's really not true. A lot of revision suggestions, whether it's enhancing characterization or building out scenes or setting details, if there, there's often just four or six or eight strategically placed places in a book where you can make those changes and that revision can be pretty impactful. So every book is kind of its own beast. Um, and this, I'm, I'm working on a third book now and it's, it's dual timeline again, like my debut. And I'm already kind of dreading the revision process on that. Cause I'm going to be back to that dual timeline puzzle and, and trying to figure out that. So every story is definitely yeah. its own beast. Well, I am already signed up for your revision session. So I'm very <laughs> excited Wonderful. for that. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure Anyone listening who either loves reading or writing historical fiction, I think, should check out the Historical Novel Society, too, and um, Sarah's class and um, all the sessions there. Well, kind of along with that, as you, because you do such a great job with really building that, like, edge of your seat suspense as you're reading and that pacing, is that something that comes sort of later as you're working on the book or are you really able to kind of in real time as you're writing, like build that in? I guess I'm just kind of curious a little bit about um, like the mystery side of things and and that pacing. Absolutely. So my favorite scenes to write in any of the books I've written are the essentially where I'm leading the reader toward a big revelation or twist or cliffhanger. And those scenes tend to be, some of them need to be paced quickly because the reader is like, okay, I feel this coming. I want to get there quickly. But then as the author, I also kind of, there's a little bit of like um, torture that you want to bring the reader through. And so you want to kind of pace it more slowly, maybe draw out your character's conversation or some of the setting details. Um, So it kind of depends on exactly what you're going to accomplish during a scene. But to answer your question, I don't worry too much about pacing when I am drafting a story. The reality is when you're writing a scene, it can be so clunky and you feel like you're trudging through mud that you have no sense of pacing anyways, because you're just trying to actually get the framework for that scene up. I find that pacing issues jump out to me when I'm reading the book um, that's already been drafted. So whether it's the second or third or fourth pass, I can tell pretty quickly like, oh my gosh, this scene is just dragging on 
Or on the alternative side, I brushed past this way too quickly and I need to develop the scene more completely. Um, so I would say for, for you, Laura, or for any writers we have on the call who are wondering about pacing, I wouldn't sweat that, your, you know, your first or even your second draft. Pacing is easy to fix, in my opinion, because it's really just expanding the balloon or making the balloon smaller. Um, and, and you just are kind of doing that with choosing your most impactful words and sentences in the scene. Um, and so you can do that at any time. I mean, when you're fixing pacing, you're not rewriting a scene generally. You're just kind of adjusting what's already there. So, um, but pacing is, I mean, that is what readers say makes them turn the pages of a book quickly. So it's important to get pacing right, but luckily you've, you you can do it later in the revision process. That makes a lot of sense. Well, one of the other things I um, thought listeners would want to hear about, you know, this is your um, second time kind of bringing a book out into the world. And I'm curious, you know, first of all, I would imagine maybe there was some nerves at first, like if the book would be as well received, which is definitely is already and getting great reviews and everything. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of about like the sophomore debut. And then along with this, is there any tips you would give kind of newbie writers or authors kind of about how you ap- approach promotion and connecting with readers? Definitely. So um, this is a kind of a loaded question, but I think it all makes sense to answer together in a way. Um the Lost Apothecary was just a smashing success. It still is selling like absolute hotcakes. And that's all really good. And I, I'm thrilled about it. It has, it has changed my life. You know, I left corporate finance to write full time due to, exclusively to the success of The Lost Apothecary. However, that really set the bar extraordinarily high for the London Seance Society. And the reality is that readers, when they have a book that they love, um, and then that author comes out with another book, readers want the same thing, but different. So what I mean by that is readers want the same sensations going through their brain and their body. They want to feel um, emotionally invested in the characters. They want to feel like they're sitting on the edge of their seat. They want all of those things, but they also want it to be a completely different story. And that's a huge task for an author. Um, and I'm seeing some of the early signs of what a challenge that is. So I remember when I finished writing the London Seance Society, I set that book down and I just thought, I love this book so much. Every single reader is going to just love this. I, I hit this out of the park. Well, about six weeks ago, um, some early reviews started started trickling in. Now I've had some awesome reviews. This The London Science Society got a starred review from Booklist, which is something The Lost Apothecary never achieved. It's had great critical acclaim from Publishers Weekly. Um, so it's gotten a lot of awesome reviews, but it, it has also gotten some not awesome reviews. And that was a pretty humbling moment for me um, because what these people, a lot of them were saying was, I loved The Lost Apothecary, but dot, 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 dot. And then whatever, you know, um, complaint they had about the London Sand Society. And so it dawned on me that no matter how 
well I think I pull off each of my books, some readers will always be comparing it to something else they liked more. And that's not something I can control. And that's not something I can escape. The only thing I can do is accept it. So um, I try to focus on the readers who say they loved this book as much or if not more than my debut. And I try to not give too much um, or not stress too much about the people who say it didn't live up to their expectations because they loved book one so much. So I'm learning this skill of resilience and humility. And at the end of the day, I just have to put my head down and keep working and understand that art is subjective. And um, some people will like my book three more than they like book one or two or or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, to, to answer your question about publicity and marketing, I've been very fortunate that my publisher... Their um their the imprint is Park Row Books and their their parent company is HarperCollins. They invested a lot of time and resources into the Lost Apothecary from day one, which I think contributed in in large part to its success. And so I kind of had this already established reader base that I've been able to capitalize on with the London Seance Society. So my publisher, they've done an extraordinary amount for this second book, and they're, they're sending me on a fabulous tour. But the nice thing is a lot of that groundwork for just developing the population and getting Sarah Penner's name out, a lot of that um, already kind of existed from my debut. And so the publicity and marketing efforts, we haven't had to go quite as hard, which is awesome. Um, And that applies to me in my own time as well. You know, I'm very active on social media, particularly Instagram. And I think I'm probably posting about half as much as I did before The Lost Apothecary came out because I just don't need to work quite as hard. And that's awesome. I love that. So um, it's funny. I, I really view my writing career as a marathon and not a sprint. I know that someday when I'm hopefully 80, 85, if I live that long, I'll look back and I will not see these books as individuals, but instead like a whole body of work that is attributed to my name. So I'm trying to keep yeah. that in mind and and just realize like it, not, not every book has to be, um, you know, a, the, the best book. It, it's okay to kind of have some that um, go down one direction and others go down another. I think that's so interesting, but I, I think as you're thinking about maybe not having to go quite as hard with the promotion, it's so true because like if I get a certain author like you where I love The Last Apothecary, I just love you as an author. And once I, I'm sort of bought in, I'm like, I'm I'm getting the next book. Like I have to read the next <laughs> book. Like I'll end up reading every book that you write. Oh. I feel like a lot of readers are like that. Like once we're sort of like, loyal to a particular author like you know if that next book's coming out it's going on my list like I, I don't know I feel like a lot of people are like that so I could see oh, that thank sort you. of yeah um but it's interesting to kind of think about bringing books out that way um yep. well you know one of the things I wanted to hear about I'm sure as a reader yourself there are probably books that you've gotten to sort of sink into and enjoy um, as much as we enjoy yours. Um, Are there any books you'd want to recommend to listeners? Yes, there are two um, in particular that I would like to recommend. One of them comes out the same day as mine, um, March 7th. And this book is The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. I read an early copy of this, which is something that 
Um, it's it's a real author perk that we're allowed to peek at these books before they come out. The Golden Spoon is basically the great British bake-off, but with a murder mystery. So I would classify it in the cozy mystery genre, um, meaning it's not super gory or dark. You're not going to be scared to read it at home alone. If anybody loves baking or cooking, which I do, you just simply can't miss this book. Um, it's gotten quite a bit of early publicity. Um, so that one's The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell. And each chapter is sort of themed with like a different cake or pastry. Um, Ooh, as they're kind so of good. Yeah, as they're kind of revealing the this murder mystery and how it went down. So I, I devoured that one, no pun intended, but that one was so good. Um, another one, let me check the um, the pub date on this. It's the second ending by Michelle Hoffman. This one has also not come out yet. It comes out June 13. Uh, Michelle and I share a literary agent. So I was able to get an early peek at this one as well. It's called the second ending. And this is essentially a, a woman who's having a middle aged crisis and her daughter has just left for college. So she's an empty nester as well. And she has this claim to fame, which was this little piano jingle that she wrote and put together when she was a small child that essentially they copyrighted it and she sold it for a ton of money. And so she's been living this life of wealth and grandeur, um, but she doesn't really feel like she earned it because this little piano jingle she pulled together was so simple and meaningless. And then someone shows up at her door and essentially accuses her of stealing this, um, these, these few notes that she pulled together and removing everything from her life that she has. So she has to sort of face this middle-aged crisis that she's having and find herself and find what creativity means to her. It is um, for any music lovers, particular piano players, it's a must read. I am friends uh, with, with a lead pianist on Broadway. He's done a lot of big shows. And as soon as I finished this book, I asked the, the publisher if they could send a copy over to my friend because I knew that as a pianist, he would absolutely love this book. So there's oh. a lot of mu music theory in the book as well. So that's, um, that's another good one. So I would definitely recommend those two. Um, and then a third and final one that I'll give is um, this book has been out for many years. So I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of it, but it's Sarah Waters. She's one of my most favorite authors. Um, and the book is called Tipping the Velvet. And it's a um, sapphic romance um, that takes place in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And for anybody who likes um, the type of genre that the London Seance Society is, or even the Lost Apothecary, Sarah Waters is a, is a phenomenal author. And I loved this, um, the, the Tipping the Velvet, which I just finished a few days ago, actually. So I would highly recommend that one as well. Those all sound great. I'm going to have to link to them. And I feel very lucky because just before our call, I got an email that um, the second ending, an arc for that is in the mail to me. So now I know what I need to read next. Wonderful. When it, when it gets oh, here, I'll have to definitely check that out. Yeah, um, that's so great. I hope you love it. Yeah. Well, lastly, I know these things can take a very long time, but I just wanted to see if there was anything. I was so intrigued that there's going to be a show for The Lost Apothecary. And I just wondered if there was any like anything that can be shared about that yet. 
Um, so, you know, what's funny is Fox has had that option for um, more than two years. And I thought for sure they were going to let it expire because they haven't done anything with it yet. But I just got word a few weeks ago that they have renewed the option for another year and they have assigned it um, a project name, which is just one word. And that's poison, which I absolutely Ooh. love and think is awesome. And they've apparently um, assigned it to a whole new team. So they're still working it. I, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, and I believe my, my um, film and TV agents in Hollywood are close to sending out the London Seance Society to different producers and studios as well to see if there's interest there, um, which they think they will be because anything with, um, you know, Victorian London ghosts and romantic tension between two women just has Hollywood written all over it. So, yes. um, so yeah, very excited to see if anything comes to fruition on either of those this year. Oh, that's so exciting. I love that title too, Poison. I like that. Yes. Well, I really hope that listeners go pick up the London Seance Society, um, their local library or bookstore. And um, I just so enjoy getting to chat with you again. I'm such a big fan of your books and um, good luck as you um, do promotion and are working on the next book. Thank you so much, Laura. And I look forward to seeing you at H&S. Definitely come say hi so we can meet in person. Um, yes. But thank you again for having me on. This has been great. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.